Have you ever seen somebody on social media go on a rant? No. Mm -hmm. um, what kinds of things do people like to rant about topics? Politics. Yes, number one right now, maybe. Being hacked. Being That's hacked? Today. Oh. oh. <laughs> I do see a lot of the messages. If you get a... If, if you get a request from me, then it's not me. And that is, and, and why would people do that? And I hate people that would try to, that's a rant too. So, yeah, what else do people? Life problems. Life problems? A lot of people are like, this always happens to me, and this bad thing happens to me, and this bad thing happens to me. I saw someone who was ranting the other day about a bad haircut. <laughs> <laughs> like they were mad at the yeah. people getting it. Well, when we see something wrong in society, um, we want people around us to change so that the problem can be fixed so that our world can get better, right? Um, and so I think we sometimes, or some people feel, if I can just get this information out to people, then maybe they will change their thinking. Um, the problem is, as much good information as is out there, people aren't changing. Instead, it seems like people were becoming more polarized in many different topics, even though it's, well, if, if they only knew this information. Um, there's one thing that I've never seen or maybe or rarely seen in the comments of a social media post, and that is... You changed my mind. You changed my mind. Like, I used to think this way, but what you said actually makes me think differently, right? Uh, maybe you've seen that once or twice, I don't know, but, but generally, it, it, it drives people even further apart, especially in the social media world, right? Um, and the truth is, as much as we want people to change, and as much convincing information as we can give people, we can't make them change, right? Uh, if Paul had social media, I think he would have reasons to rant. Um, especially if he heard what was going on in Crete, or in the island, on the island of Crete. Um, Crete is a, a where Titus is when, when Paul is writing to them in the book of Titus. Uh, it's an island south of Greece, still. Um, Paul left Titus on the island to to provide leadership for all of the house churches. Yeah, house churches. Um, and Paul is just writing this book that we read tonight, or we'll look into tonight, um, to give Titus some further instructions. So we can start by reading a little bit about Crete and what's going on in Crete in chapter 1, but we're going to look more at chapter 2. So after telling Titus um, in the beginning of the book to appoint elders in every town, Paul starts to describe what he knows is going on in Crete. Okay, so in verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10, uh, Paul says this, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. <laughs> I wonder what they would say about Americans or um, Californians. Come on in. Hey. 
And he says of what their prophet said, he said, This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Okay, so Crete has a few things going on that threaten the little churches. Okay, Cretans were known even by themselves, it seems, as a model for immorality. There were always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. The Cretans were known to be out-of-control, wild people. Um, not only that, but there are some Jewish Christians, it seems, who were kind of arguing about some of the minutia of, of Scripture or of the law. And they're kind of trying to read into the genealogies and who knows what all that they're doing. But... And ironically, those those leaders, maybe in the church, they could sound really smart, like arguing about the law and stuff, but meanwhile, their lives looked like the Cretans. It says in verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Or verse 10 says they're empty talkers. So they're, they're trying to teach some weird doctrine, but meanwhile, their lives, their, their, their words are empty because their lives are doing something else than even what they're teaching. So there's these people living morally out of control or maybe sounding religious. So what Paul puts forth uh, next in chapter 2, which we'll read, is what Christians ought to look like instead of those um, Cretans and the people infiltrating the Cretan church. So I'm, we're going to read this. <laughs> we're going to read this, and I want you to... Just... Sorry, everyone. All right, so we're going to read um, the first 10 verses of chapter 2, and I want you just to imagine these people, the type of people that Paul is telling t Titus to tell the church to be. Okay, so just, just imagine, and it's, we're going to talk about different types of people, men and women and younger and older and all these things, but just kind of combine all that together in your head and just kind of picture this type of person. Uh, beginning of chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He says, older men are to be, here's the, the description, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, they are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, Titus being a young man himself, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And lastly, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior, or of God our Savior. What's pilfering? Does anybody know? I don't even know. So you heard all those characteristics. Now, don't look at the Bible for just a second. Look up at me. What, how would you just restate what you just heard? The type of people 
that these believers are supposed to be? What are either some summer, maybe some specific terms he said or some summarizing kind of terms? Self-controlled is mentioned, I think, three times, and even another time later in the chapter. Yeah. Honorable and pure. Honorable and pure. Okay. I think responsible and pleasant. Okay, responsible and pleasant. Yeah, these are good. Not not exactly what was said, but a good kind of summary of some of the things. Anything else? To be good role models. Role models. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, just kindness and what you say and what you do. Okay. Sound like they've got a good head on their shoulders, I thought, when I read that stuff. So, so Paul is saying, or telling Titus, hey, instruct the people to stop being like the rebellious culture, right? That's the opposite of what we were talking about. Keep your faith, know your faith, and respectably, kindly, in a self-controlled way, live that faith out. If you can imagine that type of person living in a wild Cretan culture, it would stand out as, as very different. They would, would look very different than the general society. Instead of being loud and argumentative and rebellious, just be self-controlled. Don't do what the people around you are doing, okay? Uh, we see this kind of idea a lot in scripture, right? That's, that's the old self, that's the way that we used to be. We ought not to live like that anymore. We, have, we are new creations and have a newness of Christ to put on. So, uh, there's a, that's not where we're going to spend most of our time. We're going to look at the next few verses. Um, so, there is a theological basis for this type of living that Paul explains in verses 11 through 14. It says this. If you're, you're to live this way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, there it is again, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Long sentence. I want to talk um, for a moment about God's saving grace. Okay, uh, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. What is assumed if salvation is being brought or offered to all people? That, yeah, we need to be saved from something. Like salvation is needed. You don't need salvation unless something has gone wrong. So we need saving. And look, you don't bring a cure to somebody who doesn't have a disease, right? Like there's something going on here. We know that we're diseased with sin, you could say. And the wages of sin is death. So we know, as believers, we know, hey, the, the, we are in need of saving. And fortunately, when Jesus comes on the scene as a baby, um, or even before he comes on the scene, the angel tells Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. His name shall be called Jesus, which means God saves, more or less. Um, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so that's the... Um, that's the good news. Jesus is bringing salvation from sin. 
You might have also heard it say said that as a believer in Christ, you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. Have you all heard that kind of terminology before? Maybe something similar to that. Um, there's there seems to be kind of some past and present and future realities of our salvation. I've also heard it said this way. We have been saved from sin's penalty. You can call that justification. We are being saved from sin's power or sanctification, simply. And we will be saved or be set free from sin's presence. I was wondering if you complete the word. From sin's presence or, or glorification when sin is no longer around and we're in a perfected state. So we've been saved from sin's penalty. Like a past event, we've been saved. Paul says in Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And there's this justification event that happens and it's something in the past that has continuing effects forward. Um, Titus says here in verse 14, what we were just looking at, that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness. To redeem is to compensate for, to make payment for, to pay off. Um, past. This has been done, right? For, for those who believe. Being saved from the power of sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Or Titus here in chapter 2 verse 12 says, uh, regarding our salvation, we are now being trained, being trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So we were saved, we, will, we are being saved, and we will be saved from, from, from the presence of sin. And, and when Jesus comes again, we will be glorified. Paul says in Romans 13, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So we're getting closer to some event that's going to happen in the future. It's coming. And Titus says here in verse 12, the end, um, if, if we're living in this new way in the present age, he says, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So regarding, regarding a, a, the, a final salvation for believers, um, we are living before that time, okay? So the others, there was a point when, then, when we were saved, those who were in Christ, and um, that, that was a past event. It has current reality now in our life and our sanctification, and at some point we will be more fully saved, you could say, or, or the, our salvation is complete uh, when we're in heaven. We're actually not just saved um, positionally, um, we're not just being sanctified in practice, but we're also um, going to be completely purified and sanctified and set apart and, and perfect. So, um, but we're before that, and that's really important, that, that, that final kind of part of salvation, we're before that. We will be saved or freed from the presence of sin, um, but now we're before that. And Paul even mentions that in the, the present age, he, he talks about the present age, which kind of presupposes that there is another age. The Bible talks a lot about this age and the age to come. And salvation comes in, in the future. In verse 13 it says, when Jesus appears. And that's in the age to come. And 
salvation is not yet here. Now you're going to see, I think, a little bit why I'm trying to just meticulously explain these parts of salvation. I think it's going to make sense in a little bit. We've been saved, and you could call it justification. We're we're being saved. You could call it sanctification, and we will be saved. You could call it glorification. They're all kind of distinct works that God is doing, but we either have all of them in, in his great salvation or we have none of it. You can't just experience one of those things. It's all or nothing. So if you look back at verses 11 through 14 here in chapter 2, it kind of makes mention of these uh, different uh, elements of of salvation as a whole. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. That's like a the first marker that happens when Christ was um, incarnated among us at Jesus' first coming. It's appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Well, what is that salvation? Well, presently, it's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, this future salvation, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who, past salvation, gave himself for us to redeem us from all all lawlessness. And it ends by saying to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I think maybe that's talking about just salvation in in a general sense. So, we could like spend a long time maybe developing kind of this a multifaceted idea of salvation throughout the Bible, but um, does this sound does this sound okay so far? Like, do you understand kind of the different um, points of what I'm saying, the different elements of salvation? I don't. Okay, I, it's not unorthodox or some weird doctrine that I'm teaching in that. I don't think. Um, and I don't think it's going to upset a lot of people. Um, so I want to make three observations about God's saving grace. Because that's what we're talking about. God's grace has appeared bringing salvation. First of all, and, and this just goes along with, with what, what I've just been explaining. First of all, that God's saving grace empowers holiness. God's saving grace empowers holiness. Or call it this present work of sanctification in our lives. Because we were saved, and only because we're saved, we now live differently in this unsaved world. God's grace is given in salvation, and it trains us now to renounce or to reject ungodliness and worldly passions, and it trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And all of those characteristics that we just read about before that, that we were picturing the, the people that are like this, those are stimulated by and empowered by the saving grace of God. And my point in, just, in saying that is just that if you are not being saved presently, then you have not been saved in the past. Like I said, you kind of get all three parts of salvation, or none at all. The future one we can't get to quite yet. But God's saving grace empowers holiness in our lives right now. Another way to say this is, there's no such thing as being a Christian that doesn't act like a Christian. Or if you're not being saved, maybe I said this already, then you haven't been saved. 
like sanctification, this middle process, is the result of one of the results of justification. Does that make sense? Um, now, being saved, it's a process, right? Like this, this sanctification thing. We haven't experienced yet the perfection of, of the, the future work that God is going to do and that glorification. Uh, but you can see that this present work, God's grace, his saving grace empowers our holiness now. <laughs> Secondly, God's saving grace promises a future. It promises a perfect future. We gather from other sources. We hope in a future salvation. We hope in the, in the perfected, and when I say hope, you guys know I'm talking about biblical hope, which is not, oh, I, I just really wish this will happen, but we're, we're confident and look forward to this happening. We hope in this perfected world where when Jesus appears again, he, he makes everything right, and that's the age to come. And my point in saying that is we don't put our hope in the present age. Our hope is in the future. We're waiting for our blessed hope, but we don't put our hope now right here in the present. So, for example, we don't expect that the structures of this world are going to necessarily get better. Maybe there's some things that can be done to make them better, but, but government, education, entertainment, the, the trajectory isn't necessarily that those things are going to get better. This present age that we don't hope in is never promised to get better on the whole. Okay, If you consider the, the, the Bible as a whole, in the Old Testament you see the people of Israel failing time and time again. In the New Testament you see the church who a few years after Paul sets up some of these churches, he's writing them letters and saying, oh, they're failing in some ways and they need to be corrected already. It's, it, the hope is not in this, this present, and things getting better in this present age as a whole. So um, I've been listening to Rabbi Zacharias lately, and he likes to point out that in the 20th century, there were more people killed in war than all of the previous 19 centuries combined, okay? It's not, we're not just progressing, becoming better and better as a whole, as society. Maybe there's ebbs and flows, and there's some good times in history, and there's some bad times in history that we can look at, but our hope certainly is not in this age. Yet the kingdom of heaven is growing, as Jesus promised it would grow, and some of the parables that he tells talks about the expanding kingdom of God. And individuals who put their faith in Christ and are saved and are being saved, um, we, we experience change and we experience the sanctification, but the rest of the world is not presently being saved from the power of sin. They're giving into it, right? They're living in darkness and they're going to continue to live in darkness unless they're saved. God's saving grace, my point here, alone provides the perfect future to come. And it doesn't provide a perfect present. Okay? God's grace, his saving grace, promises a perfect future, not a perfect present. So, the question that I think may enter some of our minds is, what is my role then in the present age? Like, am I supposed to 
be as separate from society as I can and just live as much like Titus 2, 1 through 10 as possible and just kind of keep to myself because everything's going to burn anyway and I just need to be a good person? Or am I supposed to just kind of sit here and hold on for dear life and wait for the return of Christ and just kind of twiddle my thumbs? Hope you get here soon. Or, like, what about, aren't we supposed to have impact on the world, right? Aren't I supposed to make the world a better place and, and help to fix things in my society? What is my role in this present age? And so a, a third observation that I want to point out that, that comes from verse 14 is this, that God's saving grace is put on display in good works. God's saving grace is put on display in good works. So the, the first point that I was making, God's saving grace empowers holiness. That kind of, that's meant to be like this, this character that's talked about in the first part of chapter 2. That's, that's a character. It's not necessarily the good works that somebody does. You're self-controlled. That's, that's not a good work. It's just kind of who you are, right? But specifically, God's saving grace is put on display in believers in good works. So out of that character comes good works. Good works are mentioned, I think, six times in the letter, over and over. Good works, good works, good works. People who don't know God, who aren't currently being empowered for holiness, it says, are unfit to do good works in chapter 1, verse 16. So God is fitting us, or he has saved us, and he's saving us, not just so that we get to heaven, but so that we might do good works now in the present age. Now, I'll just ask you guys this. Why might God want us to do good works? Why might he save us? Why might he be sanctifying us in order to do good works? What are your thoughts? To glorify him. To glorify him, okay. Yeah, good Good glorifies God, yeah. Well, I think that he just cares about the state of the world. And yeah. it's like what he's created and all the people yeah. who are in it. And yeah. His people don't also care to that same extent, and it's a really crappy reflection on what yeah. the mm -hmm. point of everything is. Yeah, you, we should share God's heart and His love and care for people. I would say practicing obedience, um, and I say that in a sense as using, learning about His Word and and absorbing His Word as an action and putting it out into life, whether that be discipleship or spreading the gospel or just being kind and using your time and things like that. Yeah, that's good. I would say to reveal God to the world. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think that differs from the gospel. Um, I think us doing good works can show people, we bear more of the image of God as we do that mm -hmm. in a way. And we can reveal God. His yeah. heart. Share by sharing his heart we can reveal God's heart. But yeah. it's different than like you can't kind of pass that off as like, well, I'm sharing the gospel by with someone by like helping them across the street or something. Okay. I see that. Yeah. But it's still revealing. But it's like, saying God's something heart. about what the gospel does, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Those are all good. Um let your light shine before others so that they'll see your good works and glorify God. Give glory to your Father who's in heaven, right? So hopefully in our good works, people will see something in us and their desire would be then to, to do the same. Um, 
what are the good works is a good question, I think, to ask. Because that sound, good works sounds like something that has to be proactive, right? Like, I'm going to do good works. It's not just I'm going to sit back and hoots, God, God has made me to be this person, but I actually might have to do something. He's not just saving our character, but saving us for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? So what are those things? If it's, it's, you might notice in the book of Titus, anyway, that God, that Paul doesn't really tell us, and here are the good works now that you should do. You can kind of get bits and pieces of what might be a good work as you read through those character, you know, character traits of, of godly people. But if we are truly, and you can look to other parts in scripture, right, to find some good works that maybe we ought to do. But Paul knows, I think, that if we are, if our being is right, see if this makes sense, if our being is right, then so will be our doing. If God is, is sanctifying us, if he's setting us apart, if he's changing us, then it, it, it's almost like you don't even have to say what the good works are because they're going to flow out of a, a good heart. Now again, I'm, I'm not saying the Bible doesn't tell us what good works to be involved with, but if we are truly being saved, empowered for holiness, then we will do the right things. Um, Titus kind of, or Peter, Peter, Paul kind of talks about it um, in, I think, chapter 1, verse 15, 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. There's something that is unpure in them, and so they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. They, they don't know how, they can't do good works because of impurity in them. To the pure, if you're pure, then everything that you do is pure. So, we have been fit for good works by God's grace that has brought us salvation. So Paul goes on to give a little bit of further instruction and there, there might be some feather ruffling here, okay? But just be gracious with me. And um, I think you'll see that there's a, there's a clear reason that Paul goes on to what he goes on to in the next chapter, right after these verses we just read. Now we've already said, okay, about, about Cretans, that they're messed up, right? Their character and their actions were really the archetype of immorality, in society. Like if you, I don't remember if it said it on the Bible Project video, but you can read about people would actually use the word, like that person is a Cretanizer, meaning they're immoral and lying person. So it, like the Crete is where, where there's this immorality to the height. They had, see if this sounds familiar, they had corrupt, lying leadership, empty talkers, okay? They had rampant sexual discrimination, which I haven't even mentioned before, but the, the prized deity of these Greek people was Zeus, who himself, their, their god, was a womanizer, and they're worshiping this god. They were known for piracy, this injustice, I mean, like, literal piracy, like pirates are, like, it was a major, like, ship... Um, you, you take ships through, like Paul, the, the island of Crete. It's still a major place where you land on flights and you kind of fly out of 
Um, I forget what the city is. Big city in Crete. Anyway, um, but yeah, they would, on the sea, with all these ships coming in and out, they would steal and um, whatever you do when you're a pirate. You guys know. You've seen it on TV. Yeah. Um, so if Paul is instructing Titus to instruct the church to do good works, where might their thoughts go when there's all of this immorality and injustice all around them? What might good works, what might be some of the first thing that comes to their mind is to fix what is going on around to fix the societal problems, to fight the injustices, to fight against maybe the powers of be because they're powers that be because they are evil and they are causing a ruckus, to fix stuff, to raise hell to bring heaven. <laughs> and that's what Christians are supposed to do, right? To, to, to fix things. We're supposed to help society correct these problems. But if you look at the next thing he says in chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, interesting. Remind them, and that's a continue to remind them, that's what that statement means, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, here's what we often forget, even to this day. And no one in the room, I don't think, likes this in particular. God calls us to live in submission to societal authorities, as screwed up as they are. Submission, he says, obedience, to be subject to an attitude and to be obedient in actions. And get this, Paul is not suggesting that the good works produced in the life of a saved person should involve overturning secular societal structures. In fact, he's saying to be ready for every good work while in submission to and obedience to secular societal structures. Did you guys know that, that civil government and authorities are part of God's order in society, even if it's not Christian. And scripture never calls us to be insubordinate, not even to the worst, most worldly authorities, but the opposite to submission to them. Did you know that an unwillingness to submit to civil authorities is an unwillingness to submit to God, who Daniel says has set up those authorities. Not my president. If you read about Emperor Nero, at, at, at this time, read about his life and the horrific deeds that he's done, and then your brain is going to be blown when you hear Peter say, be subject to that emperor. Honor him. This is the consistent teaching in, in certainly the New Testament. We can read this here in, in Titus. We can read it in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and 1 Timothy 2. There's, there's places that speak about 
treating our government, coming under submission to them, obeying them, and, and other types of leadership in this world. And in the New Testament, y'all, I don't think, I, I may be wrong, I, I feel confident in this, but I'm confident that I'm wrong sometimes too. So um, in the New Testament, you won't find, take matters into your own hands. Come above and fight for what's right in society. Or overturn what's not working so that you can fix the problem. But on the contrary, you will find submit to authorities, fight for what's right, yes, in yourselves and in the church we read that, but trust God ultimately to deal with the societal injustices in the world. But, you say, what about when the government goes against God, right? That's the, okay, but what do we do in that case if we're supposed to submit to authorities? If, if civil institutions ever tell you that you must sin, then don't do it, okay? But that's not usually what, like, like when I think about the ways that I want to be defiant against authority because I'm a Christian and I want what's best for society, I'm usually upset at what our institutions allow. They allow for a whole lot of evil, right? And they're not correcting some evil that maybe they should be correcting. But usually they, at least in our lives, they aren't making you do evil or, or telling you that you must sin. So if you just think about your, your, your Christian idea of, of somehow kind of usurping or subverting the powers that be, ask yourself, honestly, are they demanding that I sin? And if not, if they are, then God would say, I must honor God and not man. But if not, God calls us to submit. And this goes to people on both sides of the aisle in any positions of, of power and any socioeconomic status. And I know that like it might not feel right to maybe all of us, um, but I just invite you, and we don't have to have a big discussion on it now, but to, just to look into that. Just read the New Testament. Let's, let's, if there's something contrary to that, then let's, let's find it and let's discuss it. Maybe we should do that on, on Sunday as a conversation piece. Um, so maybe that begs the question, well, what, what about social justice then? Okay? Um, what about helping to make things right in society? In light of God's saving grace, which we talked about earlier, what about trying to, in this messed up world, like there's so much pervading evil in the world, what are we to do in light of God's saving grace? How are we supposed to, to think about what we popularly call social justice? Um, I want to just go back to what we were saying at the beginning about God's saving grace. Okay, God's saving grace Number one, we said empowers holiness, okay? Um, this present work of sanctification. Well, how do we understand social justice in light of the fact that God's saving grace is what empowers holiness or, or right living? If it's true that it's God's grace that does that, then what primarily is the overarching hope for society or for people to get better? God's saving grace, right? P 
people can't live as though as those being saved like we want like would be right if they're not saved the world has a lot of problems but the problems of the world aren't just out there somewhere the problems are within we know it's believers right and so the solutions to the problems aren't going to come ultimately by treating symptoms or by washing the outsides of the tombs when there's dead people inside. The solution comes through Jesus Christ, who we read, gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Um, a fifth century church father said this. Um, he said, should we look to kings and princes to put right the inequalities between rich and poor? Should we require soldiers to come and seize the rich person's gold and distribute it among his destitute neighbors? Should we beg the emperor to impose a tax on the rich so great that it reduces them to the level of the poor and then share the proceeds of that tax among everyone? Equality, here's getting to his point, equality imposed by force would achieve nothing and do much harm. Those who combined both cruel hearts and sharp minds would soon find ways of making themselves rich again. Worse still, the rich whose gold was taken away would feel bitter and resentful, while the poor who received the gold from the hands of the soldiers would feel no gratitude because no generosity would have prompted the gift. Far from bringing, far from bringing moral benefit to society, it would actually do moral harm. Material justice cannot be accomplished by compulsion. A change of heart will not follow. The only way to achieve true justice is to change people's hearts first, and then they will joyfully share their wealth. That's just to, that's one example he's talking about in, in wealth distribution or whatever. The heart has to be changed. Only the God's saving grace empowers holiness and right living and everything else that you're hoping to see go right around you. People need to hear of saving grace. And anything else that we look to may help a little bit. In the long run, it may go away, but it is ultimately a futile solution. It's this house of cards that we're building that is not going to accomplish what a change of heart is actually going to accomplish. It's going to fall down and crumble upon itself. Secondly, how do we think about social justice in light of the, the second thing, that God's saving grace promises a perfect future, and it doesn't promise a perfect present. It affects our goal in this world. I've said it before, um, I don't think our goal in the world is to make the world a better place. I think that's a good desire. I think we should want that. But ultimately, only future salvation, the second coming of Jesus, will perfect the world. Might we accomplish some good things and make the world better for a time? Yeah, like I said, there's, there's ebbs and flows in society, and we can do some good, and I think maybe God is honored in that good that we can do. Uh, but it's gonna come and go, and it's not gonna last, because really, it's hearts that have to be changed and not just our practice. Maybe we can lobby to get some policies changed. Maybe that's good, but at some point, we know every four years or so, they're gonna go the other way that we tried to fix them. And so we may win a few battles here and there, but if we're fighting to make this world better, 
then ultimately I think we're fighting a losing war. And Paul says instead that we are waiting for our blessed hope to come in the future. Listen, not creating our blessed hope in the present, but we are waiting in the present age for the perfect future, which God promises to those who have received his saving grace. If you want to scan scriptures, I encourage you to do so, to find a place that is telling you to fight against injustice in the world now, I'll tell you where you're going to find that in the Bible. It's probably two places. One, you're going to find it in the Old Testament, which was written for a particular people, the Israelites, who were living in, under a particular form of government in the promised land called a theocracy, or it's supposed to be a theocracy, where God, everybody is agreeing that God is the ruler, God is the king. And yeah, he has monarchs, there's some monarchy underneath them, but it's a theocracy. And so, so, so you'll read of, of justice being served in the people of Israel, but you might notice that they're not really told to try and make all of the other nations around them serving other gods better. They're meant to stand out as different, that nations would see them and see something desirable in them. Or the other place that you're going to find something where we might fight against injustice in this world now, you might find in the New Testament in instructions given to the church and how we are to handle specifically matters within the church and to judge within the church, specifically not outside of the church. You read 1 Corinthians 5. God's saving grace promises a perfect future, not a perfect present. So our goal for society outside of God's people isn't to try to make things just as good as we can. Thirdly, how do we think about social justice in light of the fact that God's saving grace is put on display in good works? You've probably heard it said um, to not say anything at all about a problem is to contribute to the problem or something like that. Um, I understand what's being said there, but I think more importantly to not do anything yourself is to contribute to a problem. And by do, I don't mean talk about. I mean do. The good works of a believer are a balance, you could say, to Christian quietism. We are waiting for our blessed hope, realizing that we really can't affect change on society. We are not being saved, though, to just sit on our hands idly and inactively but we are called to quietly and obediently go about doing good works. And the goal of those good works isn't per se to fix society, but the goal of those good works is to point to God and to point to the power of the salvation that he's provided in our lives. So what then are those good works that we might engage with? If, if fighting the powers that be aren't necessarily the good works, I'll give you an example. Stop expecting the government 
to fix things and do something yourself. Stop talking about how society should fix a homelessness issue and start meeting the needs of poor people. Stop talking about how the White House needs to fix immigration and start taking immigrants into your home. Stop talking about abortion and start taking in unwanted children. I can't stop racism in society. God will ultimately bring justice to that. But I can, as I'm being sanctified by the Spirit of God, stop racism in my own life by his power. And we can together within our church. But we don't talk about it. We do it. Otherwise, we're just like the empty talkers that are in the island of Crete who are infiltrating the church. Be a people who do good works instead of yakking about it. Like, shut up and do something. I promise what you do will speak louder than a billion words that you write on Facebook. It, that stuff means nothing. Shut up and do something. Now, I, I know that there's, there's like two ways in general to, to kind of look at this. Um, probably if you're a Christian, now I hope that we can go here, y'all, we're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we have some different political views, all of us have little intricacies, and some of them are wildly different, some not. If you're a Christian who leans politically left or politically liberal, um, in general, I would guess that you need a wake-up call that society can't be fixed. And that's not our goal, and to stop fighting. But be submissive, obedient, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. People need to see that to be saved by the grace of God for a future society that is utopia, that is only brought about by Jesus coming again. Stop, we can't create that here. Probably, and just generally, if you're a Christian who leans politically right or conservative, believe it or LA, believe it LA or not, they are here, they exist. You need a wake up call maybe to get your head as a Christian out of the future and do something now. Like you might like to talk about the government kind of staying out of things while you forget that God calls you personally to care about people and to do something about it. You know, we should care about the hurting and the oppressed and the poor because God does. That's God's heart and we ought to share that same heart with him. We should weep over injustice because God weeps over injustice. We should make certain that within our own lives as believers, there is no hint of injustice within us by doing good works. There was a time when Christians weren't known as a political voting machine for healthcare measures, but they were known for providing hospitals. They did something, they did good works. So, if you want to, um, again, I, there are some things that, that we can clearly see here, that the attitude of life that God 
clearly calls us to. I understand that there is not perfect agreement in the church about how we should view our role in society. There are some perfectly honorable men and women that I respect greatly who would say we should try to affect change in society and make it as good as we can. Even for people who aren't believing, we should try to try to fix things as best we can. I'm that that is okay. Um, if you want to put together a sermon on on a, a biblical reasons that that we should fight against injustice. Let me just remind you of the type of person that God is saving us to be in your efforts. Self-controlled, submissive, obedient to rulers, ready for every good work, speaking evil of no one, gentle, showing perfect courtesy toward all people, avoid quarreling. You want to do social justice in those ways? I'm all for it. Go for it. But also remember that people infinitely are more needy of a future salvation than a better life for the here and now. All right, to end, um, I do want to point out, and this is what I love, this is what I, um, I am most excited about and most happy to see our church participating in. There's one place, um, this side of heaven, where we are called clearly, to work toward social reform and justice. There's only one place it can effectively happen and last. And it's in a people who house the Spirit of God. And it's in a community of those who have received the saving grace of God, who are being saved and empowered for holiness, and have a hope for future salvation. It's in the church. Verse 14 says, Christ Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, listen, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. The King James says, a peculiar people. There's something different about them. We aren't meant to change the world so much as we are meant as a church to stand on display in the world as a changed people, an alternative society where mercy and justice are being formed. And our character and our lives and the gospel calls people into that new society. And people need to see that they can't make a good society apart from what we have, freedom from the power of sin. That's what the church has. They need to see that you can't have Eden apart from the presence of God, which is what the church has. They can get a taste by looking at the church of the future salvation when they look at us who are being saved and full of good works. God is making us into a people, an, an alternate society who comes under his rule as king. We don't, we won't be a peculiar people if we just aim for social reform. Everybody and their mom is out to do the same thing. We will be a peculiar people set apart if we live as reformed and renewed human beings in a new society 
that started with the apostles. It's called the Church of the Living God. So here's just to end Paul's kind of challenge. Um, stop fighting against evil and do good. Stop fighting evil, do good. Um, I hope after all this you'll understand that what I'm saying when I say stop fighting evil. I don't mean that there isn't evil to resist. And I don't mean that there isn't a spiritual battle going on that we participate in. It's just not of this world. I, I don't think it's accurate as far as our lives in society to, to view ourselves as we are God's warrior warriors standing up for what is right on behalf of God. We are God's army. We are God's police. We have to stand up and fight for Jesus. It's the song, um, the hymn or children's song, I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir, I'll do all the things and I'll fight for justice. We should be singing the battle belongs to the Lord. Because the Lord alone is going to bring justice when he comes. And so stop fighting evil and do good. I hope you understand why I say do good. That doesn't mean just try to make secular society good. I mean you do good. You, we, the church, do good. We're the only ones who really are able to. Stop fighting evil, do good. Um, in doing that, we will simply be following Jesus. That's, a, that's how Jesus lived in the age, in, in this age. Remember, Jesus came first to serve. He's going to come again as judge, but we are called to emulate the life of Christ at, at his first coming. Humble, servant, willing to be wronged. Humble isn't exactly how I would describe Jesus' second coming, nor would I say that scripture suggests we should emulate his second coming. Some, we want to. We want to bring justice. But God calls us now to be like Christ, not to fight, but simply to be self-controlled, submissive, doing good, and that will be our testimony. And we as God's peculiar people will be a testimony to the grace of God and true lasting change and salvation.